I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. And also, just so you know, we're, we don't use the video. We're, we're only using audio. Uh, we just oh, have I changed those here. all for nothing. <laughs> yeah, well, who knows? Maybe <laughs> I'll take I a screen. put on makeup and Maybe lipstick uh, and the whole uh, deal. Yeah. God. I, I mean, I, so did I. So did I. At least, uh, at least we can see. You look, <laughs> yeah, you look nice for right. us, right? <laughs> Although I have, I have very cool pajamas. Yanya <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lalich, uh, I, I got to say, I am so, so fucking happy that we made this come to be um i feel like we've been trying to schedule this and get this recording done for for a while now and something always seemed to come up um but we we finally made it happen we're here sitting down with you and just a little bit of context to it for our listeners the way that this kind of came to be was um on my other podcast with my wife turn me on we had a conversation with matthew remsky who is um Co-host of Conspirituality podcast and a and um, a big sort of uh, uh, I guess like conspirituality critic, uh, if you will, and he put me on to uh, a book that you had written, which was called Escaping Utopia: Growing Up in a Cult. Um, and as soon as I heard that, my interest was piqued. I thought we have to get Yanya on the podcast on Sick Boy so we can talk about. The world of cults, because it's something that, I mean, I, I think in the last, definitely in the last couple of years, it's become huge. a bit, it's, yeah, it's become huge mm. with like escaping Nexium was like a really big thing that kind of put it into, into the zeitgeist of people just kind of devouring that content and becoming a little bit more familiar with like modern day cults. Um, and now, nowadays with the the interesting world of QAnon and the cult dynamics that exist within that, it's just becoming very prevalent and very, uh, very mm-hmm. interesting to look at from, from this vantage point. Mm-hmm. So I guess where I want to start with, before we get into all that nitty gritty, if you could take a moment to introduce yourself to us and to our listeners and give us a little bit of background into uh, the work that you have done um, and, and what kind of brought you into the world of of being a leading voice in in uh, in studying the social psychology surrounding cults. Well, gee, that's a small question. <laughs> <laughs> Just take it away. We'll and if listen. you could do it in three words or less, that would be great. Go. Okay. Uh, well, I got here because I myself was in a cult. Uh, when I was 30 years old, I got recruited into a left-wing political cult, and we were going to change the world and get rid of racism and sexism and all those isms. And of course, I didn't know it was a cult when I joined, and it was a very 
harsh, restrictive group. Um, we spent most of our time sitting in circles and criticizing each other. And um, people were really emotionally and psychologically damaged. I mean, it was a really rough group. Um, and the inner, the, the sort of, uh, excuse me, I can't. Hello? Yeah, no problem. <laughs> That's okay. I don't an interview until two. Okay. Amazing. <laughs> Don't worry about that, Yanya. We've got our own dog issues here. That yeah, we really. that we, oh, look at him. He's right there. Yeah, he's, There's our dog issue right so there. Cute. <laughs> um, yeah, my neighbor wanted to look at my leaking roof. Um, so anyway, the the inner core, I'd say, of the full-time members always hovered around 100, 125 people, although at times we had many, many what we call mass members or general members. Mm. So those hundred or so people, myself included, um, were pretty much in the group the full 10 years that it existed, 10 and a half. And um, I, was in I was always in leadership. And so I was privy to a lot of stuff that other people didn't know. Mm. And I got out uh, because we all got out. Interestingly, we finally had our revolution and we overthrew our leader and we dissolved the organization, which doesn't happen very often. Well, that sounds a very movie. That sounds like a very ni nicely, nicely tied bow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, at that point, I was about 41 years old and I moved to New York from San Francisco to get away from San Francisco. And I felt like I was a 16 year old 41 year old. I mean, I had, I'd only seen like three movies in 10 years. I didn't know anything about popular culture. And here I am in New York, the cultural Mecca, and I didn't know how to talk to people. And I felt like an alien. Mm -hmm. So I luckily found a therapist who knew about cult act after effects. And um, she helped me a lot. And she really, I mean, I have to say she saved my life. I was, I was suicidal at times, primarily because of the guilt I felt about the things I had done to other people in the group. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, and, and before I even found the therapist, I started trying to educate myself about cults and, you know, determine where, were we really a cult? Because at mm. that time, everything was about religious cults and there was nothing about political cults. So mm -hmm. I started doing a lot of research and reading and um, and then eventually started going to conferences of the, there were a couple of um, cult awareness organizations at the time. And I, I did a lot of writing because that's always kind of been my, my preference, a way to express myself. And so I, in 1994, I published my first book, which was called Captive Hearts, Captive Minds. And it's since been republished as Take Back Your Life. And it's kind of the number one recovery book for people coming out of cults. Mm -hmm. um, oh, sorry, uh, continue. Uh, well, so I was just going to say, so I wrote some more books. I did a lot of public speaking. And then after about 10 years, I went to grad school, got my PhD, and got a job in a sociology department at one of the California State Universities. So during that time, oh, I wasn't wow. doing as much as I had been before because the teaching load was really high. Mm -hmm. uh, but I did do one of the things I did do was the research for the book that you mentioned, Escaping Utopia, which was um, based on interviews with about 65 people who were either born or grew up in a cult and who mm -hmm. left the cult on their own and basically looking at how did they survive when they got into the outside world. Right. And, I think one of, sorry, go ahead. 
Sorry, I was I was just gonna say I think one of the big questions that that I think when especially when you say people who are either born into or ended up finding their way into a cult, I think one of the big questions that I certainly I've had is how do people end up in cults? Like it it <laughs> seems like such a like when you look at it from the outside or you hear these stories of all these famous cult leaders and the cults that that sort of exist in the cultural zeit, zeitgeist, it's like how do people find their way in into these places but i imagine it's probably easier than we might think it would be but what is that experience what's your experience like like how did you end up in this yeah. in this political cult and like what also, does recruitment like, look like yeah yeah how did yeah. how does this so, happen so one thing to to understand is that about i'd say more than two-thirds of people who join cults are recruited by a friend a family member or a co-worker so, of course, it's much harder to say no to someone you know, right? Right. So all that needs to happen is you get invited to that first thing. Once you go to that first thing, all the little cult recruiters are going to be there hovering around you and making you feel very special. And, oh, you're so wonderful. And, oh, your clothes are beautiful. And, oh, you're so smart. It's what we call love bombing. And so they just make you feel like, oh, my God, these people are so wonderful. And they like me so much. And what that does is it sets up a one of the social psychological influence mechanisms that because they're so nice to you, you feel obligated back to them. So when they say, mm. oh, come again next week, you say, okay, I will, you know, because you feel like they've treated you so nicely. So recruitment happens in increments, just as the indoctrination happens in increments. It's, but people get into cults. I mean, obviously not the kids who are born in, but but adults who join, young adults and older adults, the cult, the cult's message has to resonate with you, right? It has to be something that speaks to you somehow, either something you're looking for or something that you've always wanted to do or a way for my, in my case, it was a way to, you know, make social change. And so if the cult has a message that you're not interested in, like I always say, I never would have joined a meditation cult because I can't sit still that long, right? <laughs> but, a, but a political cult that's going to, you know, change the world. Well, that sounded fantastic to me, you know, and it all sounds very nice in the beginning because in the beginning, you don't know what the bottom line is. You don't really know what you're yeah. joining. It, um, it's it's funny because it reminds me of the, the only experience that I've had similar to this, like that. And I'm thinking of this now in hindsight is, uh, is, rushing for a frat in university. I, was just, I, was, I knew yeah. you were going to say that. Because <laughs> so of the way that he looks. Because <laughs> of the way he dresses, right? Yeah, that's yeah. what I but, thought. Yeah, but, yeah, the, yeah. but the funny thing is, is that um, I remember a friend of mine, a friend, of, uh, I had no interest in joining a frat, but a friend of mine was like, hey, there's going to be this barbecue and mm -hmm. you should come to it and check it out. To Jack Johnson. And, uh, and so I, I went to the barbecue with my friend and everybody there was so nice. It was, yeah, there you it go. was, it was wild. But then um, I, apparently this was the only I, I went to that one. It was nice. Or it was fun, whatever. But I didn't go to to any more. But apparently they um, my you. friend and a couple of the other guys who were there that I was close with who, who stuck around for a bit, um, they had gone to other frat rush parties. Mm -hmm. And then after you basically commit to one of these groups, then they start to haze you and like mm -hmm. treat you like shit. <laughs> Once exactly. they have that buy-in mm -hmm. from you, exactly. One, yeah. one of the things that it, I but wait, are frats cults? <laughs> no, frat, I, I wouldn't say frats are cults necessarily, but they use the same techniques. Okay. I mean, what cults use is basic social psychology, right? They use mechanisms of influence and control. 
So it's mm. stuff that happens in our daily life, which is why it doesn't seem weird at first. It's like, oh, okay. Um, and peer pressure. I mean, peer pressure is one of the b biggest influences in our life once we become sort of teenagers, right? Yeah. Um, and so cults don't do anything unusual in that sense. Like I get asked a lot by parents, oh, they must be giving my kid drugs. No, very, very Ooh. few cults ever use drugs. They don't need to. They just mm -hmm. use basic, basic social psychology to influence you to conform and comply. Yeah. I, I think one of the other things that is that is really important to note here is like because I've heard I've heard this sentiment a number of times of um uh, especially especially when people are commentating on the you know whatever cult is being featured on whatever documentary or podcast that they're listening to at the moment where they'll say, God, you've got to be pretty dumb to like yeah. to like <laughs> fall for to fall for that bullshit or like or whatever. Um, and I, and, and I'm, I'm All sure with the benefit of hindsight as well. Yeah. Or, or the viewer well, always has well, that. Well, exactly. Framing. But then on top of that, I, I think it's, and Yanya, I think you would, you'll, you'll probably have something to just chime in here and say about this, but, um, it's, it's, that is a, that's a, that is an, a incorrect stereotype that only stupid people fall for calls. And, and the one thing that I want to say is like, uh, speaking of Nexium and escaping Nexium, which was a you know it was a CBC podcast that came out, and they did a, a there was another amazing HBO documentary about it. I'm gonna, I'm not gonna lie, like those first two episodes when I was listening to the like what they were what the original what ideas were, were and what right. they were sounded great. Right? I was like, yeah. fuck yeah, this sounds uh, sign, sign me up. up. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm in. I wanted to be a level seven dragon lord. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so what, like for people who, who have this thought like, oh, well, you know, they, they only started following Jim Jones because they were stupid or, or, yeah. you know, what, yeah. whatever it is. What, why do people yeah. think that? And why is that wrong? Why is that not the way to, to think about it? Well, I think people think that because they want to think it can't happen to them. So they think, oh, I'm too smart. This would never happen to me. And of course, those are the people that'll be the first to be recruited because they don't have their antenna up right, yeah, right. Um, but <laughs> the reality is that cults don't want stupid people and they don't want lazy people and they don't want mentally deficient people and they don't want people that are going to be trouble for them right cults mm. want high functioning a type personalities people with skills people with money people with connections right because all of that will lend legitimacy to the group and i know in my group if we had someone who was like starting to lose it or you know had various issues we just told that person to leave like we we were we, the cult's not there to take care of you you're there to take care of the cult yeah, so right. this idea that the cult recruits stupid people is absolutely the opposite of what happens um because that that's not who they need and that's mm -hmm. not who they want and that's not who they target and, and, and what level of something that's that that kind of fascinates me as you're as you're kind of describing the you know like the incremental nature of how you get introduced to the idea and that the idea has to speak to you and 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 your experience with being in a like a leadership position within a group and and understanding or being uh, I'm very curious about at what at what level or uh, how many people inside a group are consciously aware that it is indeed a cult because you're saying that there's you're in a leadership position 
you're you're being you know you're, you you are privy to information that others are not and i'm assuming that at least for some period of time you're still not of that conscious understanding but yet there you know is is it is it a is it a willful ignorance by a a big group of people to think that you know by any means necessary we will try to achieve these goals or um or or is there a, a nefarious consciousness of you know we are you know we are taking advantage of people and we are um you know we are we are doing we are achieving things through nefarious uh ways yeah uh that's a great question i i think what happens i, I think people primarily people in leadership or people in the inner circle or at at a certain level within a group um, will have will be privy to stuff that other people don't know. I mean, I knew my leader was a raging alcoholic. I knew she was crazed. I knew, you know, the doctors were injecting her with drugs to keep her going. I mean, she was completely erratic. You know, decisions were completely based on her personal needs, nothing to do with politics. But during the time that I was still a true believer, um, I rationalize that, right? Because, mm. and this is where cognitive dissonance comes in, this concept of cognitive dissonance, right? When when reality doesn't match your beliefs and nine times out of 10, people are going to go with their beliefs because their whole identity is tied up in that. Mm -hmm. And it's much scarier to go with reality. So while I was still a true believer and the leader was acting in these absolutely horrendous ways, whether we were traveling abroad or whatever, I would rationalize it by saying, well, we have Stalin in our lineage, right? Because we were a Marxist-Leninist group. And I'd think, we have Stalin in our lineage, and at least we haven't killed anyone yet. That's how I would justify it to myself, Ooh, yeah. right? That's pretty right. bad. Right. Yeah. And, then when, and then one day, we, sh we, were, we were actually in Yugoslavia, and she made a phone call to the second-in-command back home and said, have, so have comrade so-and-so killed. And I was like, "Oh shit! There goes my justification." Oh, oh, whoa! <laughs> Damn it! But whoa. then it's but then uh, it's only one person. <laughs> it's only one. So people rationalize it, and and mm. certainly there may be uh, people who've risen to leadership who also have uh, sort of power hungry desires, who also may be a little bit narcissistic, who may be a little bit psychopathic or sadistic and they want to get to the top so they can do what the leader's doing or they can go off and start their own group but those people are very rare mm -hmm. so most people i think really will find ways to rationalize what's going on thinking that it's part of in most cases yes this ends justifies the means philosophy mm -hmm. which is why i i say all the time if you join a group and the philosophy is the end justifies the means. Get the hell out right away, yeah, because yeah. that is going to lead you down a very dark path. And we do that stuff in everyday life to a lesser degree, or maybe with like with lesser consequences. We do that in relationships. Relationships go on too too yeah. long because we justify their exactly. what they what they serve, or we stay in jobs that we don't like because of what you know this that and the other thing, and we justify. Mm -hmm. You know, you're just kind of cranking that up to ten in the in the. In the degree, in the did, conversation um, of a call, did comrade so and so end up getting taken out or uh, no, he didn't. And I yeah. and 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 thankfully, the second in command, 
I'm sure, realized that the leader was drunk and she wouldn't remember the next day that she said that. But yeah. I wasn't sure. And the whole rest of the time that I was abroad, because then I had to go to London on my own and blah, blah, blah. I was terrified. Like when I got home, was I going to mm. find mm. my comrade alive or dead? You know, yeah. um, was that a moment of realization for you and your experience? Like, was that was that a turning point for you or it, did it was a bit later? it was a bit of a turning point. I remember being in London and they they would call me every day, you know, to check up on me. I was supposed to be going to the London Book Fair because I ran our publishing house. And um and I remember thinking, because I have very good friends in London, and I remember at one point thinking, maybe I should just stay here. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. And then of course, you know, as soon as you have a thought like that, the other side of your head just starts beating you up, right? Mm -hmm. That you're having these, you know anti anti organization thoughts um mm -hmm. but there was a point at which i snapped and i and i no longer believed and i wanted to get out and that and i couldn't get out i couldn't figure out how to get out i could not figure out how to go out the door and leave and that and i lived like that for about 4 years yeah in, wow. in absolute misery for folks that that do go through that process you know so they've spent X amount of time in some sort of cult, whether they were born into it or, or joined at a later date in their life. And they go through the process of, of kind of snapping out of it and, and they do exit, they do find their way out of it. Mm -hmm. What kinds of, through the work that you've done, like what, what, what kinds of mental health impacts often are seen with folks who are going through is it deprogramming or like or, or i guess recovery from from recovery yeah re i don't recovery? like the term yeah i don't like deprogramming does sound a little fucked up doesn't it it's like it's very mechanical sounding and it's yeah, hardly yeah. a mechanical process um, yeah it's very blade runner yeah <laughs> so yeah people have to go through recovery and it's really important to find people who understand what you're going through and so obviously i don't like to push my book but <laughs> my book take back your life really is kind of the number one cult recovery book um, that'll help some, I mean, it's helped so many people. And it's also helped a lot of therapists who aren't cult informed be able mm. to understand what their clients are going through. It's best if you can find a therapist who understands about cults, um, but they're, they're few and far between. I'm soon going to be actually teaching some courses, training therapists, which I'm really excited about. Mm. But you, but the the important thing is to um, find a way to sort of unpack what happened to you. And, and that's why a tip sometimes going to a, just a regular therapist doesn't help because they always want to talk about, Oh, what happened when you were three years old, you know, mm. but you have to first undo the cult mindset. Otherwise you're still looking at your whole life through that worldview. Right. So it, I always give people certain exercises, written exercises and things to do to sort of unpack what happened to them so they can understand because the biggest things people are going to experience are guilt and shame, fear, anxiety, panic attacks, um, difficulty trusting people, not knowing how to talk about their experience. You know, there's just like a ream of things that, that they go through. And, and like I was saying before, I felt like I'd landed from Mars and I wasn't going to, you know, I'd go on a business lunch. I wasn't going to say, oh, I just got out of a cult for 10 and a half years. Yeah, right? Yeah. right. So there's all these issues that that people have to deal with. And finding a way to go through those systematically is really helpful. And finding 
you know, depending on the group, if there's other former members from that group mm. that you can get together with and talk to, you know, it's kind of a validating experience um, or even people from other cults, because mm -hmm. you'll see the parallels, you know, they'll call it this in one cult, but we called it that in my cult, right? It, so, sound, it sounds very similar to, to what someone would experience if they, if they were, if they were dealing with PTSD, like it's well, it, it is a, it is a PTSD. It's called and but um, people who are in this field who understand this kind of trauma um, have have called it co complex PTSD. Oh yes, and okay. there are all kinds of work. There's a complex PTSD workbook. Um, there's a woman named Janina Fisher who's excellent. Her work is excellent um, because PTSD is really about more or less about a one-time experience that was really awful. Mm. Whereas complex PTSD is about prolonged trauma. And mm. that's what cult survivors e experienced. Mm. Um, so it's a, it's slightly different and the, the recovery is slightly different. Mm. I, I wanted to ask about how, how, a, what, what makes a cult? Like what is the definition of a cult? And I'm curious of that in the context of, I, when I think of cults, I think of like, oh, there's probably like four or five main cults in like North America right now. I'm assuming there's more than that. Like how <laughs> how broad how broad is that definition? Can I piggyback on that as well? Sure. Just add on to that is like, has the definition of what a cult is expanded in recent years? Um. Yeah, I know what you're getting at. And I wouldn't, I'm not so sure the definition has expanded so much as the manifestations have changed. Yeah. Um, so first of all, in, in my view, a cult obviously um, has generally has some type of charismatic authoritarian leader who may be living or dead. Um, it has a belief system that I call a transcendent belief system, which means that it gives you the answers to everything, to the past, the present, and future. It offers you an entirely new worldview. And part of that belief system is the requirement that you go through a personal self-transformation. And that's where the indoctrination comes in. And then there are interlocking sort of mechanisms of influence and control that are used to get you to conform and comply. And those are going to be structured or manifested in different ways in different cults and maybe more or less severe or a little more lenient. I mean, cults exist on a continuum. Ooh. So they're from kind of sort of benign to extremely harmful, extremely dangerous, right? Mm -hmm. So not every cult is the same. But there is always this um, requirement in a sense, to give over your autonomy, to give over your critical thinking, right, to the cult or the cult leader or the cult's belief system and um, and be sort of a, a, a loyal, obedient follower, not questioning, you know, no questioning mm -hmm. the leader. Um, and so the so I know that sounds big but i think sometimes people want to make the definition really small and that doesn't make sense cults mm -hmm. are very complex organizations right they're social yeah. systems and they're structured as closed social systems right mm -hmm. so what's happened today which i think is what i don't know your name over there with the pink on your computer uh, yeah. uh taylor taylor 
Taylor, sorry, Taylor. Yeah, so I think what Taylor was getting, he looked at to see what his name was. <laughs> I went, was I went do I think I'm like a beer? Just follow the leader, Taylor. Follow the leader. <laughs> Your name is Taylor. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think what Taylor was getting at is today, and I would say since, um, I'd say the last four to six years uh, <laughs> since we got a certain man in in yeah, public yeah. office who i prefer not to name mm -hmm. um the dynamics in our country have really changed and mm -hmm. a great deal of um polarization has come about and and included in that was the pandemic and people being sheltered in and so during that time people were spending a lot of time on the computer so it's not that there were never cults on the computer before or cults recruiting on the computer. But now what's happening is we have cults that sort of completely exist on the computer, right? So we used to have uh, what I, I now call the run of the mill cults, right? These were sort of the brick and mortar. They, they had a headquarters, you knew where they were, you knew who the leader was, you knew where the different centers were around the world or around the country. And it was all, it was physical. There was a physical presence. Now we have this amorphous internet presence where mm. they've created these cultic internet communities, mm. but the same types of influence and control are happening, but perhaps in a more subtle way. So clearly the algorithms are one way that people get shunted around, and I don't really understand yeah. what algorithms are, so don't ask me to talk about that. <laughs> but the, but people and there's and there's not necessarily one leader that we can point to, right? Yeah, right. So right. with QAnon, for example, in the beginning there was this guy and his son, and supposedly he was the yeah. leader, and then after January sixth, I think it was, he he said bye bye. So what we have now are these different people who kind of pop up as replacement temporary leaders. And it might be some host of a talk show, right? And everybody's following him for a while until he mm -hmm. dies of COVID. And then it might be, you know, some <laughs> other jackass who's taking horse manure or whatever. <laughs> right? I mean, I don't want to make fun of it because it's actually quite tragic. But mm, yeah, it is. But my point is we don't have that one charismatic authoritarian leader so that in a sense, the belief system has become the leader mm -hmm. and people are attached to this anti-science, anti-vax, you know, the, the latest one where, you know, JFK Jr., whoever was going to rise, rise up in Texas the other right. day. Um, <laughs> and, and so a lot of this, I really do blame a lot of this on, on Trump and what he created in our country, mm. because the 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 fact that people were already a bit disgruntled and didn't like the government, but now we have this, you know, uh, fake media, you know, the swamp, all these slogans he created mm. to get people to not want to believe in anything except mm. him and what, what he and his cronies are saying. Well, it looks like we just crossed 5 million podcasts in the world, so it is with some humility that I introduce mine, Kelly Corrigan Wonders. Once a week, we share heart-to-hearts with smart, good people like Brian Stevenson, Anna Quinlan, Father Greg Boyle, talking about how we treat each other, how we treat ourselves, and how we might do both better. Kelly Corrigan Wonders is a podcast for people who like to laugh while they think and aren't afraid of feelings. 
Join us for Kelly Corrigan Wonders. And, and what do you and what do you make of that in the way that like it, because it is a fascinating thing, um, you know, like not that not that Donald Trump was ever very good at, at expressing what his actual policies were, but you know, no, actual actual political policies nice. aside, um, you know, the idea like like a rally, like the like this culture of rallies that that he has right. created, and. And, you know, you get this guy, Jordan Klepper from uh, uh, The Daily Show, who goes and makes really funny, entertaining little segments of him talking to people at these rallies. And, and, it's, and it's for comedic purposes, but it does have some, like, culture, cultural significance to it. But what you find is that you've got these almost like, you've got this one umbrella, which is, which is this, you know, sort of um, no questions asked following of a person who is Donald Trump. And mm-hmm. then within this sort of, like, rally scenario where you've got people going and thousands and thousands of people staying for 12, 18, 24 hours so that they can be there. You've got these like segments of people who are all believing like kind of like a different type of thing. Like there's not really a coherent in the way that you're, that you, that you're describing your experience in a call, like where you've got this like pretty clear objective. And then, and, but in that scenario, you've got these like thousands of people and there's like these pockets of beliefs and there's not, there's nothing clear, coherent, and concrete. It's it's like all these vague, like right. Yeah, it's it, like, what do you but what do you make of of that of that of I, how that organizes somewhat organically? Maybe that's not the right way to put it. But here's what I think happened: Trump created this very us versus them mentality mm. in people, which is cultic thinking, right? Um, we're the cool people. We're, you know, we're the elite, so to speak. Everybody else is, you know, crazy or, you know, whatever. So he created this us versus them mentality among people. And he fostered the violence and the racism that was seething anyway in our country and has been for decades, right? But he unleashed it, right? Mm -hmm. So people were able to act out on these hideous beliefs. Um, so that the white supremacists, for example, who were always just like fringe groups, people didn't, you know, other than the FBI or whoever, ATF, people didn't pay much attention. They weren't very powerful. Suddenly they have the head of the country giving them a nod and a wink, right? Yeah, Which right. made them popular, it made them like seem really cool, right? So, for example, when the QAnon people were, were disgruntled after January 6th, the Proud Boys and other white supremacist groups went in there and grabbed those people up, right? And mm-hmm. said, oh, come join us. We know what we're talking about. We're going to make things happen. Yeah. So there's this overarching polarization, us versus them mentality. And like, yeah, and you're right. Within that, there's the anti-vaxxers, anti-science. There's the QAnoners. There's the whatever, whatever, whatever. And their commonality is that they reinforce each other in this closed-minded thinking and they still many of them still look to trump which is hard for many of us to believe um and they foster the same that that same kind of closed-mindedness that we encounter when we try to talk to someone who's in a cult right you can't you cannot reason with them right Mm. it's really difficult so the same thing is happening only it's happening now on a national scale so that families are breaking up friendships Mm. just about everyone i know has so-called lost someone to one of these belief systems 
To the um, so this kind of um, sort of extreme individualism, I think, is what what Trump unleashed. And then we see it manifesting in these different weird little belief systems that mm. people really cling to. And then mm. they go to the rallies, they buy the T-shirts, they say the slogans. And Trump was very smart. The one thing that was smart, I don't know if he thought of it, but was having those rallies. Because that rallies are what we call a high arousal technique, right? Mm. It's like you said, there's thousands of people, they're cheering, they're going nuts, they're saying lock her up. They're, you know, it doesn't matter what they're saying. They're 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 just going wild with each other, right? Mm -hmm. That's a high arousal technique, which basically shuts down your critical thinking. You're just mm. in this frenzy, right? Mm, yeah, like mob so mentality. That's when, yeah people get deeper and deeper in when things like that happen. They feel this incredible high, right? So they want to keep feeling that high. So it just keeps perpetuating from there. Yeah. You you mentioned um like if if you have a, a loved one who's like part of this or part of in a cult, it's it's almost impossible to reason with them in these mm -hmm. moments. How do you like what what sort of help can you provide to someone if you have a loved one who's in a cult? Well my my feeling is first of all you can't you can't in most cases you're not going to be able to talk to them about the cult or the belief system first of all you certainly don't want to call it a cult yeah. <laughs> um, and so if it's a situation where you actually still have contact with the person because sometimes people don't sometimes people's relatives are completely they don't even know where they are but if you have contact with a person I think it's important to try to maintain a very calming human relationship, which mm -hmm. means don't talk about what they're doing. Talk about things you used to do together that were a lot of fun. You know, remember the time we went drinking and blah, blah, blah. Remember when we went fishing and caught that big fish, you know, whatever. Yeah. Like try to bring out, try to like kind of tap into their emotions and wake that up in them again, right? Mm -hmm. And so that they'll kind of see, maybe they'll see what they're missing or why they don't really want to harm that person that, 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 oh, my uncle Harry really is a nice guy. Why am I being so nasty to him? You know, he's mm -hmm. just, he's my old fishing buddy. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so I recommend, you know, it depends on the situation, like sending postcards to people when you travel and say, oh, we're at the Grand Canyon. I wish you were here or what, just like keep in the person's mind as a loving friend or relative, not as someone who's challenging or confronting. Mm -hmm. And you want to let the person, in whatever way you can, you want to let the person know that you're a safe haven, that if they ever change their mind, they can come to you and you're not going to ridicule them. You're not going to humiliate them. You're not going to say, see, I told you so. You should never change. You know, you're yeah. just going to yeah. let them come to you. You're going to let them sleep on the couch, do what, you know, let them rest, let them decompress. If they want to talk, fine. If they don't, fine. And, and because knowing that there's a place like that to go to is, it will, will let the person take that step. I mean, I wish I had known a place like that during those four and a half years when I was so miserable. I, I mean, I, I literally every day would wish I'd be killed in a car crash because wow. it was the only way I could see out. But if I knew there was a place mm -hmm. safe that I could go to, you know, it would have made all the difference. So it's really about just being a, a loving presence in that person's mind. And I know that's really hard, especially if they have a really hateful worldview. 
You yeah. know, suddenly your brother becomes a white supremacist. What do you do with that? Well, you're not going to, you, you also need to protect yourself. You're not going to say, oh, well, I agree with you because you don't, but you're going to say, let's not talk about that. You know, let, you know, mm-hmm. let's just go, you know, waterboarding. No, not waterboarding. <laughs> Wakeboarding. <laughs> I mean, you said waterboarding and I immediately was like, yeah, surfing. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, waterboarding. That's, um, that's, a, that's a really... Um, that's like, that's a, sorry about that. <laughs> no, no. Okay. You know, that, that what you just said there, Yanya, was like, you know, there was a snippet, like a shorter snippet in the, in the conversation that Jeremy and his wife had on their podcast with Matthew Remsky about, you know, about keeping like an open line of communication with people that disagree with you and people that are you know going down a path of believing in some kind of wild things and what i find ironic about a lot of today's societies i mean obviously we're you know we live in a very highly divisive uh uh circumstance right now with the uh, with you know with vaccination for example and you have you have you know you have a person that says like i don't want to get vaccinated and then and and they might have like a very firm belief in why that is, whatever those reasons are. And then too often, I think, and more often than not, you just get the equal opposite response from somebody on the other side. Someone calling them an idiot, someone calling them, you know, a horrible person. I had a conversation with a doctor not that long ago, and I really just had to bite my tongue because I didn't know him that well, and I was never going to see him again, so I just didn't even bring it up. But he basically said that, you know, if you don't get vaccinated, you don't deserve medical care. And I right. thought, how do you have a, me- you have a medical license? And that's crazy to me because that person, you know, you took it, you took a Hippocratic oath and all of a sudden in this, you know, if a murderer came in with a gunshot wound, you're not going to not treat the guy because he murdered somebody. You're going to treat him. And you wouldn't have ever questioned that. But now in this scenario, so I just find it, I find it so ironic that when there is like a very firm belief in something, Mm-hmm. such a large group of people will resort to the same behavior on the opposite mm-hmm. side of the argument. Mm-hmm. And that's happening a lot. And I just, and, and I'm, I just love hearing the reasonable approach of, you know, in this context of a cult conversation of like an extreme belief of saying mm-hmm. like, you can't just call that person an idiot. Think Ooh. that person is a lost cause and right. just and it, let them say it is off. hard though it is like like to i'm not i'm not saying that what the doctor said was right but it's hard to not respond emotionally to like in and and who knows what the doctor was going through at the time but like in the with the vaccination um specifically because people who aren't getting vaccinated their decisions are affecting you so it's like you know if if you have that a doesn't loved matter one, when you're a doctor and I, I know that i'm not saying i'm not saying that it, that you're wrong about that. What I'm saying is that it's hard. It's, it can be really hard to take the high road and not respond emotionally in that situation. And also if the doctor said, did did they, did the doctor say they don't deserve medical, medical care? Basically. Or they said they wouldn't provide medical care to them. I can't remember. Yeah. So anyway, it's, but I think, I think what you're describing is, is it a great example of what I was saying in terms of the, the country really has become so polarized that people are saying things like that, that, you know, the, the whole, it, it's like everybody on the left or the right, or the good guys or the bad guys, whatever we want to call them, the, you know, the science people and the not science people, mm-hmm. 
everybody is so polarized and hepped up that people are thinking, people who normally, I mean, I remember even catching myself one day saying, I don't care if those people die, you know? And I was like, wait a minute, what am I saying? Because we've learned to, to regard each other in that way. And again, I think because of the environment that, that Trump created, that it that it's okay to say you're either with me or against me, and if you're against me, I'm going to shoot you. Right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I know you guys are in Canada, but here in America, people are shooting each other every day, mm-hmm. do- dozens and dozens of times. You know? We're, yeah, we're shooting a lot of moose, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I don't is know there we have moose? But I, I I do I do want to kind of shift gears here a little bit. Um, uh, one of the other things that I really wanted to kind of touch on in this conversation specifically was the the idea of like of charisma and the use of charisma when it comes to cults mm-hmm. and cult leaders um can can we talk a little bit about like the the real meaning behind charisma because when i think of charisma i think of well i think of um uh i think of like role playing video games that i play and charisma is always like the one slot that i want to put a lot of points into cuz my character can handle himself really well in conversations and get through the story. Convince people to do things. Yeah, exactly. And, and, then, and then I think about like when I was growing up in high school, like, oh, I hope people think I'm charismatic so that I, you know, so that people laugh at my jokes or, or find me entertaining to talk to. Um, but now, now that I've like talked to like Matthew and, and been watching these things on calls, I'm like, Charisma is a little bit. Of charisma a is a little bit. Yeah, charisma is not that great. I don't think. Like, is it? Do, it's not what do it we is. want to avoid? Charisma. It's how you use it. it well, <laughs> yes, yes. So, can we can we talk about that? Like, what is what is charisma and and like the real the real meaning of of charisma when right. it comes to cults? So, charisma was was first described by a, a German sort of the founder of sociology, a German sociologist named Max Weber, and. What he explained about charisma, which I think most people don't get, is that charisma is not something you're born with. It's not something you have inside of you. Like, you know, a baby is born and they're going to say, oh, this baby's going to grow up to be charismatic. Charisma is something that you impose, you give to a person, you attribute to a person, right? So you decide that somebody is charismatic, right? Mm-hmm. Once you attribute that to somebody, that sets up a power relationship because that person now has power over you because you've decided there's some kind of special being more Mm. special than you. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So charisma is actually a social relationship. It's not a particular trait or attribute. And it's a social relationship with duties and obligations like most social relationships. So for the, for the person who is deemed charismatic, it means that he or she has to every now and then, appear charismatic right he has to you know like trump has to come and do his rallies and be there in front of people and show himself right or some guru has to do his magic tricks and you know uh, create stones out of nothing like a magician you know as um, sai baba did so the the obligation for the charismatic is to every now and then do these things right but the obligation for you the believer is to respect and honor and obey and be devoted to that charismatic leader that you, that you've Ooh. attributed that to. And that makes and so, so much sense for Donald Trump now because I was always like how do these people think right. that this guy but like it's because right. they perceive him to be right. charismatic right. not so, 
So right. as, as I say in my book, <laughs> charisma is in the eye of the beholder, right? It's right. like you're the one who decides who's charismatic, which is why some people might think Trump is and others of us go, oh, my God, you know, whereas Ooh. we might think, you know, Obama was charismatic and other people would go, oh, my God, or, right. or John yeah. Kennedy or Clinton or whoever. Right. So it's really about you attributing that to someone um, and, and setting up that relationship. Now, cult leaders um, and, and other individuals who are considered charismatic, some business leaders, et cetera, they do have often have certain personality traits that kind of lend to that. They Sometimes they're very glib. They know how to read people. They're, um, they're the kind of person who can easily persuade someone. They're very sure of themselves, right? They're very kind of self-centered and narcissistic. So that can make it look like it's coming from them, the charisma, but it's not. Mm, wow. Do, um, yes. Mm -hmm, do, yeah, totally. Do, um, I mean, for you, for if, um, in your experience and, 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 you know, with people that you, um, have come across like generally in terms of people who have left cults, it, do, do people tend to have wild belief, um, swings when they, exit a cult like so for example you know you're in a you're in a you're, you're in a, a leninist marxist cult you know um you know are you are you, are you like did you become a libertarian afterwards like what like, 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 like you know is that is it common to to just to go on a wild swing um after um, you after you realize that you've been kind of like indoctrinated into something i think it depends on the person i don't know too many people who've done that i mean in my experience i i I knew, I mean, I remember saying to myself, I don't, I don't want to now become a right-wing nut, you know, because I got screwed by a left-wing organization, right? Mm -hmm. So I started doing a lot of reading. I read the, you know, the communist dissidents and what were their complaints about Marxism, Leninism, and, you know, really, because that's my way of like intellectualizing things. But so I think some people do that. I, I'd say often people who come out of religious cults, they often feel that, God abandoned them, or if there's really a God, how could they have let this horrible organization exist or this pastor or whoever? And so they may go through a period of not wanting anything to do with religion or organized Ooh. religion. Um, and then they may eventually figure out if that's still important to them. Um, but, mm -hmm. but I don't, I can't really think of too many people who've really literally gone that wild swing but i think Ooh. more so and this is one of the things i recommend is sort of like take apart the ideology that you believed in to see what was real and what wasn't and and what in there do you maybe want to keep and what you don't you know mm -hmm. so um i think it does take that kind of you know self-examination are, are all <laughs> cults bad and in that same sort of question like are re are religious groups cults all of no. them <laughs> no what's what's the difference so in in my view the difference between a cult and a healthy religion there's several things um first of all a, a healthy religion shouldn't have you worshiping the person right in front of you right the pastor or the whoever right mm -hmm. um generally in a healthy religion you're you're worshiping or you're revering some higher spiritual being or, you know, Allah or Buddha or a tree or whatever it might be. Right. But you're not 
completely wedded to this guy who preaches at you every Sunday or every Saturday, right? Right. So that to me is one difference. And another difference is that I think a healthy religion will give you guidelines to live by, but they aren't going to come and check up on you to see that you're actually doing them, right? Ooh, so right. they may say, don't use contraceptives, right? But they're not, somebody's not coming into your bedroom at night to see if you're using contraceptives, right? right. So the the kind of, um, and so, you know, I get asked about the Catholic Church a lot because I think the Catholic Church is one of the stricter religions, and there certainly are sects within the Catholic Church that are cults, uh, like Opus Dei and some of the other like sects. Um, and and it was one of the, you know, obviously it took a long time to bust open about the sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, again, a healthy religion should have. Uh, checks and balances and a way to make complaints. And and this is the problem with today. I don't know about your country, but we have, you know, just a flood of these small non-denominational, well, now they're not so small, but these non-denominational churches, right? Mostly fundamental, Christian fundamentalist. Being non-denominational means you don't belong to a larger denomination, which Presbyterians, Lutherans, whoever have these denominations that those pastors are accountable to. So you can make a complaint above the pastor if you need to. Mm. But in these little non-denominational churches that some guy starts in his living room or on a street corner or at a stadium after a while when they get that big, you know, these big mass churches, there's a problem of not having of not having accountability uh, for the pastor or the people, the elders, you know, whoever's in leadership. Right. Right. This is, uh, I feel like we could go on for hours about this stuff because it's just so, it's so endlessly fascinating. Um, and, and, and especially just interesting to talk to you, Yanya, with, with all of your, your background and all of this. Is is there anything that we haven't touched on that you were really hoping that we would at least hit or, or anything that you, you want to leave our, our audience with? Well, I think, you know, one of the things you had said to me when you contacted me was your interest in children born and raised in cults. Mm-hmm. And and that really is one of my main interests right now, because I believe that that's who's leaving cults right now are the kids who were b- born and raised in it, who are adults. Um, and many of them suffered such horrific abuse, sexual, physical, you know, whatever, whether they were boys or girls. And many of them were homeschooled, uh, which is a problem, at least here, because there's really no regulations. It's really not checked. So all these cults that live on compounds or live close to each other, and they quote homeschool, but all they're really teaching is the leader's beliefs. Mm-hmm. And so the, the and often they don't really have any kind of education and they get out in the world and they just don't know what to do with themselves, right? They leave because they know it's wrong. And they get out in the world and they're like, they don't know how to get a driver's license. They don't, sometimes they don't even know their real name. They don't have birth certificates. They don't know where to go for help. They end up living on the streets. There's literally hundreds and hundreds of suicides, people turning to drugs, because we have no social resources for these people. Mm. And so that's one of my big issues right now is for us as a society to, to see this really is like a, a like a health a public health crisis right we mm-hmm. really need to have resources I, I mean certainly for those who join as adults but certainly for the children because they they were so deprived and often so 
held back in their development that it's 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 to me it's unbelievable when i when i meet many of them who actually have successfully survived and it's mm. you know it, i mean it's so brave and courageous so i i just think that's something i do think audiences need to be aware of and think about and help and, out if they can and do you think that there's there's more of a prevalence of these types of cases now that we're kind of 15 20 30 years out from from what seems like a time where uh, there seemed to be a lot of sort of cults popping up specifically religiously you know with like the um with children the of God. yeah yeah children of god or or you know um love tribes I mean, you, you name it. There, I, for some You're reason, I want to say about like seventies like and eighties, seventies and eighties, cults of the seventies and eighties. And so, mm -hmm. like, are 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 we seeing a lot more adults now that were born into those cults? Yes, coming out of that system and and trying right. to make sense yeah. of life. Yeah, and I mean, and we see people like you know from the Hare Krishnas, where there was horrendous abuse of the children. And now there's a whole second wave of that happening. Mm. Um, and and people who grew up around um, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, either in India or in Oregon, and the children there were not only neglected, but sexually abused by pedophiles. Mm. Um, the children of God, 12 tribes with the kind of um, corporal punishment that happens in that group. And so, uh, yeah, I think we're seeing the fallout of that uh, for sure when it comes to the kids. Uh, I call them kids, but usually they're adults when they get out. But um, yeah, because, you know, some of those groups have been around for decades. And then, yeah. of course, we have the whole new age, you know, all the kind of management training programs and and the wellness industry and all that stuff that's happening today, which is a whole new wave of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's amazing that it's amazing that 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 people who are born into cults can. Like the resources that they would that i would imagine a lot of them would need when you're essentially starting from from scratch after yeah. being in a cult for so long like i think of um i can't remember her name now or the or the name of the people but the westboro baptist church there was a daughter oh right uh, the daughter and she left and i was going wow like what a what a transition that is and oh, yeah. megan megan phelps megan phelps. phelps yeah and and i and 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 i if I'm not mistaken, I believe her avenue to exiting was by creating relationships online and with social media. And like, and I would, pro and I would probably more so often associate social media with a tool for, you know, like recruitment and everything. like right. that. Right. But there is a, there, there's a lot of stuff on the internet. A lot of former members have started websites and things. So there is a, you know, hopefully people can find those. Um, mm -hmm. Cause there, I mean, there, there's, that's one way that many of them do find support. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the other person who um, I forget the name of her book, but uh, leaving the witness, leaving witness, she was, you know, was in the Jehovah's witnesses and she was in China and was conversing with someone on the internet. And he slowly started oh. e talking to her and easing her out. And she, mm -hmm. you know, left her husband, which was kind of a fixed marriage. And, and and got out, you know. So, yeah. Amber, Amber Scora really, was who wrote that book. Amber Amber Scora. Amber Scora. But the yeah. other really fascinating story is um, the book "Rising Out of Hatred," which is about the guy who was the son of 
the um, his father uh, ran Storm, uh, what was it called Storm something some big white supremacist website and he mm. was going to inherit all that he was like you know the super duper young kid white supremacist and then he went off to a liberal college and he started meeting kids other kids he started dating a Jewish girl which was like unheard of and yeah. and slowly he, these you know his friends talked to him had dinners with him invited him to seders on Fridays and and he eventually left he split from his dad and and the whole radio big you know radio show they had and it's a great story rising out of hatred yeah. it's a it's a real example of how you slowly talk to someone and kind of ease them out do do people who leave cults do they always are like these types of institutions are they when they leave them do they always know that they're leaving a cult and that's sort of like like that that's what they have to seek help from or is or no they don't no sometimes yeah. they leave sometimes they leave because they something they know it was wrong or they leave because uh, sometimes the leader dies um, I mean, I've had people come to me who were in cults, who left their cult 20 years ago, and they just now figured it out. And then they realized why in the last 20 years, they had so much trouble making friendships, doing you know, a relationship, all this stuff. You know, I mean, a lot of it, it has been these documentaries. Um, the other one on Nexium, which was on Stars, uh, Seduced. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you, and The Vow, I can't tell you how many people have contacted me after watching that and saying, oh, I just watched Seduced, and oh my God, I realized I was in a cult. Yeah. And, and I talked to you, you know, so <clears throat> they don't always know it's a cult, no. Right. Uh, this is a little bit tongue in cheek, uh, but um, I, I am I am genuinely curious. We joke about uh, multi level marketing uh, oh, company, companies yeah. companies quite a bit. Like what what is? I mean, you know, I I think you said um, you, we we were talking about something earlier, and you were you you mentioned like uh, groups that use similar techniques. They're not cults, but they use similar techniques. Is mm -hmm. is 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 multi are multi level marketing companies kind of just like adopting the play like the the cult playbook to and and you know sort of maybe not taking it to that extreme that a cult yeah i would does. say most of them yeah most of them are are using the same techniques to guilt trip people and make them feel like it's their fault they're not a millionaire already uh, some of them are more cult like because they do actually have a belief system beyond just making money mm -hmm. um amway is an example where they really have a very the conservative right-wing patriotic God and country, you know, it's Betsy DeVos's husband and she was our so-called secretary of education under Crazy. Trump. Mm -hmm. um, and so Amway, I think falls more on that side of there's really a, <clears throat> a sort of bigger belief system attached to just the prosperity gospel. Um, but certainly I, I'd say probably almost all of them use the same techniques and really just take advantage of people. It's, it's, it's really criminal. I'm sure yeah. everybody watched Lula Rich. I mean, that's a perfect example. I haven't seen it. What's it called? Lulu Rich? Lula Rich. Lula Rich. Yeah, it's a it's a documentary about a company called Lula Row, where the women women were convinced to sell these tights and dresses and stuff. You've got to watch it. It's fan. The the documentary team did a really excellent job. It's a really great documentary. I think it's oh, four yeah. episodes or five. Hundred well, percent okay. on Rotten Tomatoes. Man, there you go. Yeah. How, how'd that slip through the cracks? Yeah, how'd that slip through. Yanya, this is this has been such a treat. Thank you so much for taking time out of your Thank day you. today to talk about all this because it's 
it's something that, uh, like I said, is just endlessly fascinating. And and we're we're so happy that you're doing the work that you're doing. And um, and you know, just thank another you. example of of how important this work is. So thank you so much for thank for you. It's been really fun. Thanks. Yeah. That is it for today. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. If you like what you heard, make sure that you share our podcast with your friends. We love those extra ears. Sick Boy Podcast is a Snack Labs production. It is produced by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, Brian Stever, and Lauren Sankey. Sound design is coming to you from Donovan the Meerkat Morgan. The music of the show is from our friend Rich O'Coin. And Sick Boy Podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis. That is it for today. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. And I'm Jeremy. And this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.